Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes fils et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. Now, this episode is a pretty huge episode for the podcast. As today we are speaking with a historian that a number of the historians we have previously talked to have said is somebody they really look up to. Gary Gersel is the Paul Mellon Professor of American History and Fellow of Sydney Sussex College at the University of Cambridge. He arrived in Cambridge in 2014 after a three-decade career in the United States. He is a historian of 20th century America with substantial interests in late 18th and 19th centuries. He received his BA from Brown University and his MA and PhD from Harvard University. He lives in Cambridge, England and Cambridge, Massachusetts. Of specific interest to the listeners of this podcast is a book Professor Gersel wrote in 1989 titled Working Class Americanism, the Politics of Labor in a Textile City, 1914 to 1960. Gary, welcome to the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. Uh, thank you, Jesse. It's good to be with you today. Now, your book focuses on the French Canadians of Woonsocket. So maybe we can start with, how did you come to write a book about French Canadians in Woonsocket? What put that story on your radar? Well, it's quite a story. It happened, and it happened so long ago, probably before most of your listeners were born. <laughs> Not us. <laughs> uh, I was interested, I was a graduate student at Harvard, and I got interested in uh, labor history, and I was part of a band of young fellows at the time trying to write a different kind of American history with labor at the center of that history. Uh, working class organizations, unions, strikes. I was a child of the Cold War and we grew up thinking uh, any kind of strike activity or union organization was communistic and therefore bad. And I was on a mission to recover a different kind of American history. Uh, and I was looking for rebellious militant workers in various places. Uh, and someone who was about five or 10 years older than me, Jeremy Brecker, wrote a book called Strike, in which he simply compiled every strike that American workers had engaged in across 150, 200 years. And it was a stunning book to a lot of us because none of us knew any of this activity. And there, lo and behold, 1934 was this massive strike in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, or Woonsocket, Rhode Island, as I, <laughs> That's right, yes. as, I, as I would later learn. And I thought, well, let me check this out. I called up a friend of mine, Paul Buell, who was married to Mary Jo Buell, labor and women's historian at Brown University. And Paul knew everything about radicals in America. He was a card-carrying member of the New Left. I said... <laughs> Paul, what's in Woonsocket? He said, I don't know, but there are rumors of all these French and Belgian syndicalists running around. Let's go up and check it out. That's awesome. So we went to check it out, and we found the remnants of a, a, union, uh, a union office, the Independent Textile Union, the ITU. Uh, and we began asking, no one knew anything about this union. No one knew anything about Woonsocket. And I began digging around, and lo and behold, this was the site of the most powerful union among textile workers in New England in the 1930s and 40s. And that mattered because textiles was still probably the largest industry in New England in the 1930s. Sure. Uh, and 
and 40. So I began to recover the history of this union that had uh, expired due to deindustrialization. No one in Woonsocket hardly knew anything about it. And then, of course, you don't have to spend more than a week in Woonsocket to discover that this had a reputation as being the most French city in the United States. La vie la plus française aux États-Unis. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, and uh, that presented a problem to me because I just was going to study workers, modern workers, spoken English, and who, you know, were imbued, you know, were working in a capitalist system and they were forward looking. And I come across a city that 70% of the population is French Canadian. And of course, anyone who knew anything about labor history knew they had a reputation for never, ever, ever going on strike. Right, absolutely. And, and so the puzzle for me, this became an interesting puzzle for me, rather than say, let me go find another city where I can understand what the <laughs> up to. I said, let me try and understand this nexus between this r reportedly very conservative ethnic and religious group. What was the relationship between that and the labor militancy? in this city what how do we understand that relationship and out of that puzzle and trying to answer that question this book emerged and it took me deep deep into the history of the city of of french canadians of the labor movement in the 1930s i learned a lot about quebec i learned a lot about industrialists in france who were establishing subsidiaries in Woonsocket, a very complex story unfolded before me, which I found uh, utterly fascinating. And my mission became to, to show how uh, French Canadians became the backbone of this very militant union and to understand then how an ethnic culture that had been regarded as very conservative, very priest-ridden, uh, sustained this very powerful and very American, patriotically American, working class movement. That's what drew me to Woonsocket, and that's what led me to write this book, Working Class Americanism. Sure. Um, and maybe perhaps if you could just give us a thumbnail on like the background of the town of Woonsocket a little bit, like, because we've talked about, we've had historians tell us about, you know, Lewiston and Manchester, um, Lowell. We haven't really gotten the Woonsocket story yet. So how does this basically small town in Rhode Island, all of a sudden become this major textile hub with French Canadians and Belgians and a really interesting history. It's a city in the 1930s and 40s, 40, 1930s and 40s, small city of 50,000, a long history of textile manufacture. Uh, it's in the Blackstone Valley, and maybe you've studied some other mill towns in the Blackstone Valley, you know, the valley going really from Worcester to, to Providence. Uh, it started off a uh, cotton manufacture, uh, and then it became a center of woolen manufacture. And in 1890, uh, the, there was a tariff passed by the McKinley administration. This was President McKinley, which basically made it impossible for foreign exporters of woolen and worsted goods to get their goods into America. And France was a major manufacturer of high-quality woolen and worsteds. And the manufacturers in France said, the only way that we can keep our American market is if we establish subsidiaries in the United States, because we can no longer export our finished goods directly there. Sure. So they established in the 1890s and first decade of the 20th century, they established subsidiaries. These are industrial magnates from the north of France, mostly Roubaix and 
Torquin, which were centers of textile manufacture. And their arrival dramatically expands the city, not that it ever becomes a really big city, but it makes Woonsocket probably the second center for woolen and worsted manufacture in New England, second only to Lawrence. So they arrive and they are called the France French to distinguish themselves from the French Canadians. And the two, <laughs> groups don't the two groups don't like each other. We can talk about that. <laughs> sure. And they are regarded as haughty, aristocratic. The French in France regarded French Canadians as this provincial parochial outpost of peasants who had not done a thing to modernize themselves in 200 years. So the, the modern French really want to have nothing to do with French Canadians except employ them and exploit them. Sure. So that's what they're doing. Now, the, what happens is that they have this uh, complicated machinery, a particular machine called a mule in particular, a mule, uh, which is an unbelievably complicated piece of machinery. You need very, very skilled workers to operate them. There are not enough available in the United States. Part of their motivation for coming over to the United States, these manufacturers, was to escape their radical socialist employees in France, most of whom were mule spinners. But well, then they discover they can't find any mule spinners to work in their factories in the United States. And lo and behold, they bring over these same radical militants that sure. they're looking to get away from by establishing <laughs> factories in the United States. So they import the troublemakers, so to speak. And mule spinners have so much power in factories because they can just shut down a factory at a moment's notice. And you can't, as an employer, fire them because they're tightly bound into little craft unions. They all support each other. If you fire one, you're in a sense firing them all. And they just shut down production until you agree to their demands. These become the cadre uh, of the union in Woonsocket. Uh, they are radical. They are socialists. They are also pragmatic. They are world itinerant radicals who've seen a lot of strife and struggle. They're experienced uh, at forming unions, and they figure out how to build the unions in Woonsocket. That's a one very important part of the story. The other important part of the story is that by the 1920s, the, ex the experiment in uh, ethnic survival in Woonsocket on the part of French Canadians is no longer working. They had imagined that they would remain purely French Canadian, untouched by American influence. Um, they, the rivalry, it's hard for Americans to appreciate today the deep antagonism between Catholics and Protestants. Sure. Uh, but it was once very deep in America. French Canadians in Quebec uh, felt this antagonism acutely. They were surrounded by a sea of English Protestants. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, what it says on the, I think it still says this on the Quebec license plates, je me souviens. It does indeed. Uh, I remember, and that refers to General Montcalm when he was lying dying on the Plain of Abraham in 1756, just being defe defeated by the English. He's saying, I remember, I will never forget this defeat, and the French will rise again uh, yeah. on, in North America. And this message is communicated to four, five, six, seven, eight generations of French Canadians. And their mission becomes to have a pure 18th century kind of Catholicism survive in a world that's seen as Protestant, modernizing, materialistic, lacking in spirituality, lacking in proper, proper reverence for God. Uh, and it's a very priest-led culture, and they, they're into what they call survivance, which means survival, and cultivating French-Canadian customs. And 
when the leadership in Quebec is unable to stop French Canadian migrants from coming to New England, a movement that they oppose, sure. they say, if we can't fight them, we'll join them. And so they join them in New England, and their and their goal becomes to establish French Canadian Quebecois society in these New England towns. And one reason why French Canadians settle so heavily in these small towns, you might ask, where are the how can I say that French Canadians are one of the largest immigrant groups in in New England? Where are they in Boston? One might say, right? Sure. Well, they they purposely settle in small towns because they feel they can control life in more small towns easier than in the big cities. So all these small mill towns in New England are heavily populated by French Canadians, in which they recreate their uh, old world culture to a remarkable extent. So much so that grandchildren in Woonsocket of immigrants who came in the late 19th century grow up speaking only French, okay? Not French and English, only French. So it's a remarkable example in ethnic survival, religious survival, but the pressures from the external Americanizing environment just become too intense. World War One, all these young men going off to war and mixing with other people, the, the suspicion of ethnic groups after World War One that they're being disloyal, uh, and also French Canadians in World War One in Quebec opposed the British, uh, so they're not eager to fight. So there's suspicion cast on the French Canadians. There are laws passed in Rhode Island which make it impossible to teach uh, foreign languages in parochial schools, which have been the custom. Sure. And so the community, which had been very tight, begins to crack in the 1920s and begins to come intern become internally divided. And there's one moment uh, they called the Sentinelle Affair where the one of the, one group of Americanizers are not just the Protestants, they are the Irish Catholic um, Archdiocese of uh, Providence, or the Diocese of Providence, not the Archdiocese. And they want to establish a new uh, parochial high school, and they want to have it open to uh, Catholics of all persuasions. And they appoint some uh, Irish Catholic priests to run it. And for the French Canadians in Woonsocket, for some of them, this is this is death, right? Yeah, this, not having that, yeah. This has to be resisted at all costs. And so there's a big internal fight. Are we going to obey the uh, our superiors within the Catholic Church, or are we going to resist? And some people in Woonsocket go so far in their resistance that they are actually excommunicated from the faith by the Pope. And others in the French-Canadian community say, well, we insist on our French-Canadian customs and values, but we have to respect Rome. We have to expect sure. respect the hierarchy of the Church. So this splits apart this tightly knit ethnic community. It throws the ethnic leadership into disrepute. And this opens the community to alternative leaderships like the union leadership. This happens on the eve of the Great Depression, the Great Depression of 1929, 1930, 1931, 32, 33, 34, 35, <laughs> further undermines the economic life in Woonsocket and makes the French Canadian workers, the masses there, desirous of looking elsewhere for leadership, for mobilization, for economic security, different ways to express their ethnic culture. So this opens them to a union appeal in a way they would not have been open to a union appeal 15 or 20 years earlier. Now, one thing I find interesting is you've talked about Le Vance, and that's something that's come up quite a few times on this podcast. But there's always Le Vance on the other hand, while still trying to prove I'm super patriotic American as well, like trying to have the both. And I'm wondering how you found that interplay in Woonsocket. Well, I think uh, for the Sentinelle affair, the radical French Canadians are not so interested in proving their 
American patriotism. They still believe that they can exist independently of the American nation around them, and they remain dedicated to that proposition. That is the position that by the 1930s becomes unsustainable. Sure. The, the power of American industry, the power of the American government during the New Deal, uh, the power of mass culture, movies, radio, it just becomes much, much harder to uh, seal off the outside world. And also, I think there's, there, there's much more intense emphasis on the part of both public and private authorities outside Woonsocket to insist on Americanness of the people in America. America in the 19-teens and 20s had huge numbers of immigrants in it, not just from uh, French Canada, but from all over Europe and, and other places. And before, you know, say 1900, 1910, there's a lot of confidence that uh, America can assimilate people just by being America. It, people sure. will encounter American freedom and American liberty, and they'll encounter uh, an American economy, they'll the mass culture, they'll want more of everything. Sure. Uh, so there's a lot of confidence that Americanization will happen quite naturally. The, the scare of World War I is that you have all these immigrants. Suddenly, there's, you know, American authorities become aware of millions and millions of immigrants whose loyalty they can no longer, they no longer feel they can count on. So the pressure to be 100% American, prove your loyalty to America, becomes intense during those years, and it never really eases after, even after the war is over. Uh, so by the 20s and 30s, those who insist on a very strong ethnic consciousness, if they are going to be successful, they also have to begin pr proving that they are American patriots as well. The problem is in the 19-teens and 20s, a lot of long-settled Americans are saying you can't be both. Sure. Theodore Roosevelt said, you know, the Irish can't be American and celebrate St. Patrick's Day. He's turning over in his grave today because <laughs> everyone in America celebrates St. Patrick's Day, right? Not just Absolutely. the Irish. Absolutely. It's yep. like everyone. I'll bet, yeah, French Canadians, Latinos. We still have parades in Manchester, sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, everybody does. So there is a sense in the 19 teens and 20s that you can't be both ethnic. Uh, and American at the same time. And that has that is a space that has to be created. And it's created by the ethnics themselves. And this is and this is part of what's really interesting about this union and the and the workers who joined the union, the French Canadians, they because the union itself is an Americanizing institution. They're they're saying to these French Canadians, give up your ethnic culture, become American. Uh, if you embrace democracy, you'll have democracy on the shop floor. You'll have more leverage against your employers. They'll have to negotiate with you. And the French Canadians say, OK, we're going to buy all that. We're going to do that. We're going to become Americans. and We're going to demand our rights as Americans on the shop floor. Now they understand that as French Canadians, they may not have any rights on the shop floor. Sure. But as Americans, they do. But they also say we're going to become American in some ways, but we're going to remain French Canadian in other ways. So don't think that just because we're, you're asking us to Americanize that we're going to relinquish our entire culture. Our, our culture is too important to us. Our religion is too important to us. If we're going to become Americans, America has to broaden its sense of what an American is. So an American is no longer a Protestant. An American can be a Catholic. An American can be a French Canadian, a 
An American can be an Irishman, it can be a Jew, it can be a Greek, it can be an Italian. The 30s are the time when this definition of American begins to work itself out. And a lot of it's coming from the bottom up. A lot of it's coming from ordinary people, mostly at this point, children of immigrants who want to become American, know they have to become American, and yet they're also saying we're going to become American at least partially under our own terms. Sure. So we're going to, in the process of becoming American, we're going to redefine what it means to be American, and also we're going to redefine what America stands for. So in the 1930s and 40s, this is the moment when America goes from having an image of itself as um, an Anglo-Saxon nation, right? Not a lot of room for Catholics and Jews. Not at all. Yeah. In an Anglo-Saxon nation. Uh, America goes from being that to having an image of itself as a Judeo-Christian civilization. Gotcha. So Christian includes Catholics and Protestants. Sure. And the Jewish part stands for itself. So there's a big transformation in how America is defined. And these ordinary French Canadians in Woonsocket, like ordinary ethnics in a lot of other places, are playing a very important role in this transformation. They are the ones saying, we have agency here. You're, go you're asking us to become part of this nation. We want to become part of this nation. But if you want us to become part of this nation, you have to expand the meaning of America so we feel comfortable here. So they are the executors of this transformation. So the idea that survivance and American patriotism easily coexist, I would say by the early 1940s, that is true. Mm -hmm. Is not true in the early to mid 20s. Gotcha. So it's in that period that America undergoes this major transformation. And I call the book Working Class Americanism because these French Canadians are also workers. Sure. And they're not just saying create a place for French Canadians in America, they're also saying create a place for workers in America. So we're going to define an Americanism that respects the rights of the working class. So it's the story that I tell becomes a story about the struggle to, to define what America is. And ordinary people, poor workers, have 10 or 15 years of having extraordinary success. I've always liked looking at pictures because you still see pictures of like uh, St. Jean-Baptiste parades. Obviously the celebration of all it means to be French Canadian. And of course you still have people carrying the Lots of people with their American flags and their giant pictures of Washington, right? You see almost as many as that as you see the French-Canadian iconography during some of those parades. It's pretty fun. Right. Well, I think the, the, the merger of the two becomes a very powerful story. Now, we mentioned, of course, um, the Union a couple of times. So I'd like to talk a little bit about how what seems like a, a story that doesn't make a lot of sense if you know the reputation of the French Canadians, or you've alluded to it already, of being uh, a group that you could depend on to not unionize. That's uh, the management loves French Canadians because French Canadians won't form a union. And how did they become the backbone of what became a super powerful union in Moonsocket? That's a really interesting question. I spent a lot of time thinking about that um, for, for the book. Um, if you... If you ask what does a union re union require to be successful, it needs some labor laws that allow <laughs> workers sure. to organize in the light of day, so it doesn't have to be entirely clandestine at night. And they get that in the 1930s. The other thing you need for a successful union is uh, solidarity among the workers themselves. And one thing the French Canadian had in spades 
was solidarity. Sure. This was a very tightly bound uh, ethnic community, uh, trained in ethnic survival, an aggrieved minority with a keen sense that people, the external Protestant world was trying to destroy them. And so they had to mobilize constantly in family and church and ethnic organizations to protect themselves. Uh, and out of that grows a tremendous conviction about the importance of maintaining their culture and their links to each other. Because the links to each other are, are so powerful, French Canadian community can sometimes act as a monolith. And if a, if a conservative leadership gets control of it, priests or you know, an ethnic elite that's not, not priests, but has a lot of authority, uh, they can pretty easily point this group in a conservative direction. But these traditional elites are discredited in the 1920s for a variety of reasons that I talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. So suddenly the, sol the, the solidarity that perme permeates, the ethnic solidarity that permeates the ranks of French Canadians becomes available to other callers. Uh, and the union leaders uh, in Woonsocket discover that the French Canadian networks through the various mills and the loyalty that these workers had to each other, uh, once they begin to take steps toward organizing, they transfer the loyalty that had characterized them as an ethnic group from the ethnic group to the union. Sure. So, so the union ranks become infused with this very powerful sense of, of ethnic kinship. And these are people who trust each other, who have links to each other, and they, they're linked from mill to mill. They have a lot of different family members in a lot of different places in the mills. This, what, this solidarity that had been ethnic now becomes a hitch to a labor union. Uh, and it turns out that these, the solidarity of, of French Canadians is going to help the union enormously. And also at the same time, the Catholic Church is undergoing a reformation, both internationally and nationally, in terms of how it thinks about the working man, especially as the hardships of the Great Depression settle on everyone. And uh, the church itself becomes much more open to the needs of the working class, and they become very supportive of unions as long as they're not communist unions. Uh, and so it is now possible in the 30s for a pro-labor message to be heard in church on Sundays. Sure. Whereas in the teens and 20s, one never would have heard that. Now, the ethnic solidarity of the French Canadians for the, if you remember the France, French yep. mule spinners and radicals, it, this is a mixed blessing for them because on the one hand, French Canadians uh, bring a lot of solidarity to the Union and a lot of strength to the Union that is not apparent in other cities that have a much more polyglot working class. On the other hand, this means that certain French Canadian traditions and so forms of sociability, beliefs about Catholicism, uh, are still very much alive. And it may mean that these French Canadians flooding into the Union are going to develop a different vision for what the Union should be from what the radicals who started the Union have in mind. Sure. Uh, and eventually this battle has got to emerge within the ranks of the Union, and it's going to lead to the ouster of the radicals and the French Canadians taking the reins of the union and at that point making it a more conservative union than what it had been. It loses its radical reputation by the 1940s. So the, uh, this ethnic solidarity is 
unmoored from its traditional leadership becomes available to the radical unionists who use it to solidify the ranks of the union. But then it becomes a problem for the radical unionists themselves <laughs> uh, who um, can control this powerful force. And the French Canadians are ultimately interested in home rule. We are the majority of this union. We will occupy the top leadership positions. And so there's, sure. there's quite a bit of struggle that goes on in the late 30s and 40s over who would control the union. And once that fight emerges, the, the Franco-Belgians don't really have a chance because they have a lot of authority in the union, but they're small in numbers. And for a union that prides itself on its democratic character and was intensely democratic, uh, it's going to elect people who represent the majority of the union members, which is what happens. Sure. Now, it, one thing that I found fascinating working on this project is that it's really complicated the narrative that I guess I grew up with, which was, you know, these mill towns that have all these blue collar French Canadians who worked for bosses who are by and large not French Canadian. And uh, we've had a couple of, we've had a historian uh, talked about Lowell, how there was very different classes distinctions even within the French Canadian population. It isn't just as simple as the story that kind of we've been told. And I'd be interested to see what, what that looked like in Woonsocket. Uh, it's a little different in Woonsocket because the upper echelons of society were controlled by those who were called the France French, those sure. who had come from France. And the antagonism, when I was interviewing French Canadians in Woonsocket in the 1970s and 80s, when they let the phrase France French drop from their mouth, you could, <laughs> you could still hear the contempt sure. in their voice, even though they have... The, this distinction had not been meaningful at that point for uh, for thirty or forty years, uh, but that was a that was a deep division uh, in the town. The two groups were uh, contemptuous of each other. Uh, there was also a um, you know a, a, a native grown French Canadian elite within Woonsocket, and uh, they ran the banks, and sometimes they uh, a, f a few banks in town. Uh, one person in particular, Ar Aram, well, depends how you, you can pronounce it different ways. Uh, in Woonsocket, it comes to pronounce Potier, but it's Potier, P-O-T-H-I-E-R. He becomes governor of Rhode Island at a certain point. He represents an elite within the French-Canadian community coming out of Woonsocket. They try and merge with the France French because that represents to them a kind of nobility and aristocracy. Sure otherwise unavailable to local peasants, no matter how much money they have. So the, these, and then of course, another uh, elite group in town are the leaders of the church and the figures in the, in the Catholic establishment, the schools and the other associations that they sponsor. Uh, so it is a, a variegated community in that way. Uh, but the uh, vast majority of the people of Woonsocket into the 20s and 30s remain uh, working class, which is why if they speak, speak with, one, with one voice, the voice that they gain in the 30s, their actions and voices can be, um, can be decisive. There's also a really interesting um, generational difference and also chronological impact if one asks when, it's two questions, when do French Canadians in Woonsocket cease being monolingual, meaning they only speak French? Right. And, and then the question, the second question is, when do they become monolingual in English? Sure. When I visited Woonsocket in the 1970s for the first time, the grandchildren of immigrants still spoke their English with a really heavy accent. 
which means they were growing up in homes in the 1920s and 30s where French was still the first language. Sure. And they yeah. would not learn English uh, until they went out into the world to a mixed school or or baseball or or just forms of association that, that young people get involved in. The watershed is, I think, the 1940s and, and World War II. And that's when um, the, the bilingualism, so French Canadians who uh, were children in the 1940s, they are the first generation, I think, to grow up speaking English first. And they are the ones, the first generation to be challenged with their bilingualism. So French becomes um, difficult for them. Uh, so the, the 40s is the, is the critical transitional moment where the assimilative forces in Woonsocket as everywhere else uh, become too intense for the local community. To. That also introduces axis of differentiation within Woonsocket. Are you, bi are you monolingual in French? Are you, are you completely bilingual? Are you monolingual in English? It's a story of succession and change. And that occurs over the 30 years that I study uh, in working class Americanism. Yeah, it's, it's one of the major things we talk about all the time. Uh, both my parents grew up speaking French in the house in Manchester. And so why me and my sister are the first generation who don't is, is this something that comes up time and time again, for sure. Yeah, and were they, were, was their first language French, do you know? It was, yeah, it was. And they went to school half the day in French, half the day in English. But no, it's interesting. One thing I find, another topic that's kind of fascinating, I wish you talked about it with uh, the mayor of Bitterford, Maine, uh, was the process by which these you know French Canadians came down, got these jobs in the mills, um, then over time became you know people who were not wanted and a lot of times weren't welcome at all uh, to becoming political players. Uh, as you mentioned, one became, you know, governor of Rhode Island. Obviously, this is a very, very uh, slow transformation, but but I find it interesting how this entire thing kind of developed. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how, you know, they come in from a lot of times unwanted immigrants to all of a sudden now they're being targeted as please join our political party. You can help us. Well, one of the one of the great things about politics in America um, is that sometimes it is in fact democratic, and I mean not. <laughs> I mean, I'm not for the Democratic Party. Sure, right. If you mobilize your people and you get enough people out to vote, you can you have a chance of gaining political power, uh, first at the local level, and then maybe at the state level, and then maybe even at the national level. Uh, what makes the period that I studied in this book so interesting is that the uh, all kinds of immigrants who had come in the early 20th century from French Canada, uh, from Europe, uh, until the 1920s, very few of them are participating in electoral politics. They're, right. they're simply not voting. Uh, right. if they, they have the right to naturalize after five years, and naturalization carries with it uh, the right to vote. Uh, but they are either preoccupied with the hardships of daily life, how does an immigrant make his or her way in a new land where you don't speak the language and uh, the foods that used to make your favorite dishes with are not available anywhere close by and you know, <laughs> trying to get a job and maybe you've got cousins or an aging mother and father back in the home country and you got to send them money. And I mean, the same thing immigrants face today, right? There are sure. a tremendous amount of pressures on them. And so very few of them bothered to vote. And many Americans, long settled Americans, are making them feel 
they don't belong in America. And they're, in a sense, telling them you shouldn't be voting, even though they have a right to vote if sure. they become citizens. What happens in the 1920s is that virtually every group that had come between 1900 and 1920 in large numbers, it's really 1900 and 1914, because World War I is not true of French Canada, but shuts off European immigrants coming to America. You don't really want to be on a boat crossing sure. the Atlantic between 1914 and 1918. If right. you can help it because there's a good chance you're going to be sunk by a, a, a German U-boat. What happens in the 1920s is that rates of naturalization in these immigrant populations double and in some cases triple. So French Canadians, Southern and Eastern Europeans go from like one in four immigrants being naturalized and thus having the right to vote to two and four or three and four. Right. They are doubling or tripling their numbers in the 1920s. And this is properly understood as a political awakening. They're not getting citizenship so they can get better jobs. They don't need citizenship for that. They're getting um, uh, citizenship so they can vote because they have felt this intense pressure on them about exclusion. Immigrant gates are closed in the 1920s to the world. French sure. Canadians are exempted from that because Western Hemisphere was exempted from that. But most European immigrants can't get into America anymore. And the and their compatriots who are here are upset about that. Their French Canadians are being told they can no longer teach French in their schools, even if they're uh, if they're if they're private schools. They feel this pressure intensely. They're 100% Americanism. Get rid of every trace of your culture. A tremendous amount of anti-Catholicism. The the Klan is reborn. Right. America in the 19-teens, and their targets in the 1920s are as much Catholics and Jews as they are Southern blacks and. And so immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe and also from Canada who are Catholic uh, and also from Ireland who are Catholic feel this attack on them intensely. And they say enough already. We're going to this is America. We have the right to vote. If we naturalize, we will naturalize and we will vote. Now, the returns in the 1920s look very bleak. Yeah. So Al Smith is trying to get the Democratic nomination, an Irish Catholic a governor of New York. He's trying to get the Democratic Party nomination in 1924. He's being opposed by William McAdoo, Woodrow Wilson's son-in-law, who's a devout uh, Protestant uh, from the South and a tacit endorser of the Klan. The Democratic Party goes 103 ballots. Are you listening out there? People worrying about Bernie and Blue. <laughs> go 103 ballots over 10 days at Madison Square Garden. <laughs> and, and then finally, they just give up and exhaustion, and they nominate some nondescript corporate attorney who gets crushed by Calvin Coolidge in the 1924 election. Al Smith does get the nomination in 1928. He gets crushed by Herbert Hoover in the vote, and Herbert Hoover is playing the anti-Catholic card constantly. But buried in those very dim election statistics is one very interesting trend. In the 12 largest cities in America, Al Smith carried them all. The largest cities in America were almost uniformly populated, one half to third to three quarters of their population, by immigrants, their children, sure. and their grandchildren. Franklin Roosevelt is looking at these returns in 1928 and saying, hmm, <laughs> yeah. I can do something with this. And he appeals to the northern ethnics in a very powerful way. Uh, and they become the backbone of his coalition in 
the 1930s. So there's this enormous political awakening. He rides to power on the votes of European and French Canadian ethnics. He even gets the votes of French Canadians who historically, you probably know this, are Republican. Absolutely. Yeah. Why are they Republican? Because the Democratic Party is controlled by those who they consider to be the worst enemy, Irish Catholics. Yeah, absolutely. They see as agents of Americanization, going to strip them of the distinctiveness of their culture. So because the uh, the Irish have such a firm control of the Democratic Party, Al Smith is, is an Irish American, the French Canadians try to make the Republican Party their own. And even French Canadians in the 1930s are voting for Roosevelt, and on a state level, they're part of a general campaign to punish the Republicans statewide in Rhode Island by electing slates of Democrats. And the union in Woonsocket is at the center of this. So part of the power being exercised uh, by this union and by French Canadians in Woonsocket is of a political sort. It's hello, we're here, we're American, we have the right to vote, we are mobilized, we are angry, we have a vision for what we want America to be, and we are going to vote for those candidates who are going to enact that vision. And yeah. they have a remarkable level of success uh, in the 1930s and 40s. After that, of course, in these mill towns, everything becomes colored by deindustrialization and the and the mills leaving and uh, you I don't know if you've covered that in other podcasts but that's you know that's a harrowing sure story it's like a it's it's 30 years of bleeding and and losing economic activity so it uh, it interrupts this rise to political power of these groups because it is ultimately going to make places like Woonsocket ghost towns for 20 or 30 years in places that cease to matter. But elsewhere, this kind of mobilization of the 20s and 30s is the decisive force in American politics from the 1930s through the 1960s. So I've written about this elsewhere in terms of the rise of the New Deal order. This is, this is Roosevelt, the Democratic Party, with a strong labor base. All that's going on in Woonsocket in the 30s brings this political formation to life and makes it the dominant political formation in America for 30 to 40 years after that time. Yeah, one thing I found interesting that I caught in your book uh, is that we a lot of times assume that um, this motivation to become part of the voting the block of voters, uh, somehow a way of assimilating. But in a lot of times, you made sure to register to vote and get yourself voting as a way to maintain your cultural identity. It wasn't so much as, a, as an attempt to go assimilate, it very much the opposite. Uh, absolutely, and the, and the French Canadians in Woonsocket in the 20s and 30s, they come to understand that. And this is a way for them to assert themselves and who they are uh, in American politics. We, we recognize that in, in American politics today, especially in the Democratic Party, right? Where, all these new groups are asserting themselves. And also you see the, it's anxiety producing when new groups are making their claims, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And, and, and- Still uh, is, yeah. It still is, you can see this in the Democratic Party today. And the Democratic Party in the 30s was in a similar place. New groups were asserting themselves and saying, we are here and uh, we have to be taken into accounts and we have a vision for what America is and we're gonna try and actualize it. No, that's awesome. This has been a blast. Uh, but I do need to make sure I ask about 
the dimensions of Americanism, because I know if I don't, I'm going to hear about it. So you got nationalists, democratic, progressive, traditionalists. What are those about? What is Americanism? That was my question, right? Right. And if, you know, and everyone thinks they know what Americanism is. But you ask 10 people, you get, you're going to get five different answers. <laughs> uh, and so I came to the conclusion that Americanism you, does not have one single definition. I mean, Trump thinks he has one definition. But <laughs> it's not shared by a lot of Americans. In fact, it's not shared by a majority of Americans. Um, and within the ranks of his opponents, you're going to find different conceptions of what America is or what it should be. Sure. Uh, so I um, thought Americanism is better understood as a language of politics and identity that has different components that its users can use in different ways. Uh, and the components are, as you mentioned them, if I can remember them myself, nationalist, democratic, progressive, and traditionalist. It's pretty good for a book. Written. There you go. <laughs> Still got it. Yeah. Uh, so nationalist <laughs> is easy to understand. If, if you want to speak the language of Americanism, you have to identify with the founding fathers, with the revolution of 1776, with the constitution of 1789, with the Bill of Rights, these sacred moments and these sacred sure. documents that give meaning to American liberty and American freedom uh, and American democracy. So uh, if you want to be an American, you have to, at some level, explicitly, if you want to use this language, say these moments and uh, these sacred documents have meaning for me. You have to declare that affiliation and your loyalty to them. Sure. The democratic um, dimension uh, recognizes that, uh, you know, the, it takes off from the uh, first three words of the Constitution. We the people. We the people are sovereign. America is a republic that is dedicated to the proposition that people will be sovereign and they will enforce their sovereignty through democracy understood first and foremost as elections. But what else does democracy mean? Part of what the workers in Woonsocket were saying is that you can't just have democracy at the polling booth. You need democracy on the shop floor. You need democracy in the factory. Working conditions ought to be mutually agreed upon by employers and employees. There ought to be a democratic parliament governing workplace life. Sure. It's still a rather radical notion in, <laughs> in, in, in America. So the, the democratic dimension refers to the importance of democracy in the American experiment. The progressive dimension is the association of America with progress and science and marvels of manufacturing. And you think of all the inventions that with America that has become associated with, whether it's the automobile industry or whether it's, it's high tech, uh, Americans always defining something new, always believing that um, the future belongs to them if they can just find the right formula, the right device, the right sure. idea, uh, and that America is a modern place rushing into the future, embracing the future, whether the car, the airplane, the internet, uh, the computer, all these incredible advances in pharmaceuticals and drugs, and all these inventions and advances associated with science, education, progress, believing that uh, the capacity to transform and mold the world in ways that help America and help Americans is boundless. Sure. Uh, so that's the progressive dimension. And the traditionalist dimension is uh, evokes a hearth, home, family, patriarchy, 
belief in God, this too is part of America, right? Sure, absolutely. Uh, and so I identify these four different themes of the Americanist language, and that allows me to show how different groups of Americans put them together in different ways. Uh, and it allows me to show how there are multiple meanings to Americanism. And if, that were to if we're to understand this thing called Americanism, we have to understand that the thingingness, the thingingness of Americanism <laughs> is temporary. There are moments when it does have a stable meaning, but sure. because you have these different elements that can be put together in different ways and, and, and you can impart different meanings to them, it means that the possibility always exists that some group of Americans will define America differently than other groups. That also means that political conflict in America take shape over the question of what is America and who does it, who does it belong to? Sure. Uh, and so the idea that Americanism is just flag-waving, stock car racing, <laughs> Trump rallies, make America great again. The message of my book is that uh, there have been deep patriots on the left of American politics who stake their claim to America as intensely as conservatives do today. And when they did that, they had extraordinary success in making America a place that they were very happy to live. Now, I do need to talk a little bit about, before we go, kind of like the decline, like it's kind of the end of the story of the independent textile union, what its decline meant to Woonsocket, and how did the French Canadians adjust to life post being this giant, you know, mill town? Well, it's a very, um, you know, it, it's, it's a very sad story. Uh, uh, the, had the economic heart ripped out of it. There are various efforts to, to persuade, uh, employers, uh, from leaving, um, Woonsocket had a longer lease on life because, it was concentrated in woolen and worsteds, which and those processes were harder to mechanize, uh, and thus using unskilled labor was harder to deploy for a longer period of time. You probably know this, but the the the, the cotton towns in New England are finished by the 1920s. Yep, yep. As you know, vigorous economic centers. The woolen and worsteds for them, the period of collapse is the 1950s, so they get an extra 30 years. I don't think anything could have stopped the flight of capital. I mean, this becomes a national phenomenon in uh, textiles. The union tries to stop it, but it's hemorrhaging members because more and more employers are leaving, meaning it's it's got less revenue, less funds, has less power in, in the city. They try and hang on as long as they can. And then, of course, they are also blamed for the decline. Like if there hadn't been a union, sure, the textile industry would still be there. Uh, and this is occurring in a Cold War America when unions are being equated with being communistic. So even the conservative Catholic French-Canadian leaders of the textile union in Woonsocket become accused of being communist, which is a real fantasy. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, kind of crazy. Uh, and uh, but they um, they 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 stand accused of causing the collapse of this once very proud city. And they internalize that, uh, you know, they, they, in a sense, accept responsibility. They come to feel that, that they have been um, complicit somehow in the decline of Woonsocket, even though that's utterly untrue. But that makes them ashamed to 
um, talk about their story and their history. Uh, so that so much so that so that when I first arrived in Woonsocket in 1976, no one knew about this union in the city. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, and uh, except there still was an office for the union that I think they had three officers and three members <laughs> were still hanging on to a storefront to try and sustain themselves. Uh, no one in the city knew anything about this union. No one had any inkling that the most powerful textile union in New England and New England's major industry was in this very city that had been a powerful force in state politics. Sure. Part of my task as a historian was to recover a completely lost history. There was also no, there were no records for the union easily available anywhere. And I probably would not have been able to write the story except for one key figure in the history, a man named Lawrence Spitz, who was a communist uh, from Providence, who was brought in by the leadership of the union in the late 30s. He was a real dynamo. And then he's run out of town as a communist in the 1940s. He goes on to great success in the Steelworkers Union and becomes a personal assistant to I.W. Abel, who was once a reform leader of the Steelworkers. And he kept meticulous records. And I, uh, I found him. I wrote him uh, in Pittsburgh and I said, can I come see you to talk to you about the ITU? That's awesome. And I remember, uh, yeah, I'm a 22-year-old <laughs> guy at this point. <laughs> I walk into his office and he had every newspaper clipping from the union he had put in scrapbooks. Oh, wow. Uh, and I um, recovered all of those and I interviewed him at length. And then he said, well, I have more records. I said, well, can I see them? He said, no. I said, I said, why not? He said, because they're on Martha's Vineyard. I said, what are they doing on Martha's Vineyard? <laughs> okay. Well, uh, uh, he was, and when he was in Providence, um, he bought um, 100 acres of land on the western part of the island in 1948 when no one nice. wanted anything for, for uh, $5,000, so $50 an acre. That was a pretty good investment, yeah. It was quite an investment. <laughs> being a union man, when he retired, he would winter in Sun City, Arizona. But being a good, uh, being a good <laughs> to New England um, every summer, and he and he would go to the vineyard. And I started going to the vineyard to um, to consult his records, uh, and 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 that was the only complete. It wasn't complete, but it was only the the only substantial uh, set of records. For the union he kept in his guest house on Martha's Vineyard. And so that's where I did the research uh, and the work for that. I got him to donate. If any of your listeners are interested, I got him to donate um, all his records to the Rhode Island Historical Society. I also, for this project, um, uh, oral history interviews were critical because, again, the written record were, was weak. I probably interviewed 40 or 50 people. And again, I how would I find these people? There was no union presence. I'd, I'd find names of union members mentioned in yearbooks from 1935. And then I began tracking them in local Woonsocket uh, phone books. There's no, there's no internet. Right, right, right. And I would kind of, uh, call, call, you know, cold call them or yeah. just show up. On the show up at their house, yeah. Show up at their house. Uh, and frequently they had not talked about the union in 30 to 40 years. So the uh, experience of doing this research was a real act of recovering lost history. And it seems to me it's a terrible thing for a, a city to lose its industry and its source of employment. 
but it's just as bad for it to lose its sense of history, right? Absolutely. I guess that's part of yeah. what you're doing here with your podcast. Yes, sir. So uh, I would like to believe that the um, I have done a bit to restore a crucial part of Woonsocket history that I hope in some ways will live on. And I'm delighted in that way that you have found what is now a rather old book. Your listeners should know <laughs> that published in 1989, which is exactly 31 years ago, right? So, um, it is. And there's also a museum in Woonsocket that uh, is built on the on what I have done in this book. So absolutely. Uh, yeah. so, so some of that history is still alive, and I'm pleased to see that you're doing your part to keep it alive. Well, this has been awesome. Super interesting conversation. You mentioned 31-year-old book. It's still a super interesting, very relevant book to our story. So we've been talking with Gary Gersel, again, professor of American history at the University of Cambridge. This has been awesome. What are you working on now? So our listeners know. I'm writing a book on the rise and fall of America's neoliberal order, politics and economics in America from 1970 to 2020. <laughs> uh, I'm writing about the, the world that we lived in until 2008 and how it's all coming apart. And what is, what is it that makes Trump and Bernie Sanders principal players in our politics when they were un, unimaginable as principal players before 2008? So I'm trying to understand the world we are living in now and Hope to have some suggestion of where it will lead. I'll be right. I'll, I'll be, good luck. Yeah. I'll be writing the last chapter in the two months after the November 2020 election. Gotcha. That's awesome. Well, Gary, thank you so much for joining us. This has been awesome. Thank you very much, Jesse. Pleasure to be with you. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair to think that everything they love we simply do not share. But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive. Each of us must choose how much to keep alive. Each of us must choose how much to keep alive. Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.